0: So we would literally drive to the slaughterhouse with a thermos, and they would hand us a bag of ovaries.
1: Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hi, hello, how are you? Welcome back to the podcast that will finally answer the question we've all been wondering the answer to. Can polar bears and red pandas reproduce? No, seriously, y'all. In this episode, that is one of the questions that I ask. It may be a joke, but there's actually a reason for it, and you'll understand why when you hear the episode. See, that's the thing. Y'all, this is one of those episodes. You see, today I am bringing you my interview with Dr. Aaron Curry of Crew at the Cincinnati Zoo. And if you don't know what crew is, you're about to, Um, but it's a super cool conservation science thing that exists at the Cincinnati Zoo. And I just can't wait to share this with you. But honestly, I don't want to say too much. I will say this. I have known Dr. Aaron Curry's name for a long time, and you'll even find out why that is the case in this episode. Um, And I was shocked to learn as much cool stuff as I did in this one. This is such a great look at the science and the work that goes into conservation that happens behind the scenes at amazing zoos all around the country, like the Cincinnati Zoo, and just doesn't get enough credit. So yeah, you're going to hear a lot of sciencey stuff. You're also going to hear a lot about some animals that you've heard about on the podcast before and ones that you haven't, um, but get get to know a little, of the, a little more of the animals at the Cincinnati Zoo, never a bad thing. And um, yeah, we're talking pandas, we're talking polar bears, we're talking all kinds of cool animals and cool science, and I just, this one's really special to me, y'all. I cannot wait to share this with you. And honestly, I don't think I'm going to. Everything that I would normally drop in the introduction is addressed in the episode, including a very cool behind-the-scenes thing I got to partake in that you'll hear about. And um, yeah, I'm going to skip the ad and everything. Just make sure you're following at Safari on things. And, um, you know, cool. Let's get to this incredible, awesome interview with Dr. Aaron Curry of Crew at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens. (laughs) Right. So I normally start this podcast um, by asking a couple of questions about who you are and all of that jazz. But um, I, I'm actually just a little, well, I'm confused. Um, I've, I've met an Aaron Curry before, a Dr. Aaron Curry before. I do not want to take away the credentials from that doctor. And um, I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to ask you is, as we sit here, do I have to feed you apples and grapes throughout this process or are we good? We're good. We're good? Okay. I'm just checking. So for, for those who are listening, can you explain what the heck I am talking about right now?
0: <laughs> sure. Yes. There was a red panda born here at the Cincinnati Zoo um, several years ago. I don't know how old she is now. Um, but the staff here at the who took care of the pandas, they um, wanted to honor me by naming one of the pandas after me. Um, my last name is Curry, C-U-R-R-Y. So they pitched the name Curry for one of the red pandas, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, but it turned out there were a lot of red pandas named Curry already in the population. So they didn't want to duplicate names, and then, sort of as a joke, um, my, my fiance said, "Just name her Dr. Aaron Curry," and the registrar just drove off, and apparently that's the <laughs> name that got entered into the computer that day.
1: Yep, yep. <laughs> I like that the credentials are there. That's my that's my favorite part of it, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So you are you are the second Dr. Aaron Curry that I'm meeting, and. Um, no offense, but I like the other one a little bit better. She's um, much cuter. Yeah, yeah, but you seem pretty cool, too. So that's that's all right. Um, and so, yeah, so who the heck are you? Where are we? And, like, what is your job here?
0: So we are currently at the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my name is Erin Carey, I'm not the red panda. And I'm a reproductive physiologist or a staff scientist at CRU. And CRU is the research center located on the grounds of the Cincinnati Zoo, And it stands for the Center for Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife. So I work full-time there. I study mostly polar bear reproduction, but I do a little bit with other species like red pandas as well.
1: Awesome. And, um... Uh, first of all, I just have to tell you, I think crew is the coolest. Um, I do, uh, you know, my weekly zoo news episode. I feel like I say crew at least once a month, and could probably do every week if y'all advertised a little bit more. You know, <laughs> um, the stuff that you guys do is so next level and so cool, and I'm so excited uh, to share with my listeners what that is. And please feel free at any point in this, this interview to butt in and be like, oh, and we also do this because my questions are less important than what you do. So, you know, um, I think it's fabulous. And, and so, um, let's start with a little bit about you though. Uh, I've, I've just heard some of the words that you said and, 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 um, and so I'm assuming you're from the Philly area.
0: I am born and raised in the Philly area, Northeast Philadelphia.
1: Yeah, I got that. Yeah, we all got that. And, um, and, uh, before we started the interview, we went and filled our bottles with what? Water. Yeah, there you go. All right. Very good. <laughs> and it's okay. You can laugh out loud on the podcast. <laughs> Guys, she's doing that thing that some guests do where they they stop themselves from laughing out loud. And I'm like, but no, you're having fun. It's okay. i take a step back from the microphone. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's okay. You can make me sound funny. I know that I'm not, but I, I try. I try. So, um, <laughs> no, but so tell me how you got into this.
0: So going back to being born and raised in Philly, um, I lived in the city, so we didn't have a lot of access to wildlife. We had um, a park that ran near our house, Pennypack Park, where we could see like deer and stuff like that. Um, we went to the Philadelphia Zoo a lot. I always loved animals. Um, we had cats growing up. We got dogs when I got a little older. Um, I loved science. I loved studying science in school. Um, so when I was looking at colleges, I, I really thought that if you liked animals and you like science, then you become a vet because what else is there to do? Um, so I went and went and looked at schools that had animal science programs, but I wasn't totally sure that I wanted to commit to being a veterinarian at the time. Um, so I went to University of Delaware for my undergrad, and I majored in animal science, and I picked up a minor in wildlife conservation and another minor in psychology because I was also interested in animal behavior, still not really knowing how I was going to tie those things together. Um, some of our professors were, you know, they, they told us pretty early on, like, don't get your hopes up about vet school, but my hope's Already weren't up because I didn't think I wanted to go. Right, and they told us to maybe consider like the pharmaceutical industry where we could do you know animal experimentation for for medicines, and that did not sound appealing to me at all either because I you know I love animals and I didn't want to be doing that all day. Um, so it wasn't until like my senior year of undergrad I took an um, reproductive physiology class because it fit into my schedule and it was a requirement, not really because I was interested <laughs> in it. Um. But it was like 9.15 a.m. in the morning, and the for, uh, the professor that I had, he was just excellent at explaining these like complicated concepts and how the hormones are orchestrated and all these feedback loops, and it really just like blew my mind. I had a great understanding of it. And it was kind of around that time I could sort of see how I could combine my interests of wildlife conservation with reproductive physiology, because wildlife needs to reproduce, and <laughs> we're still trying to figure out how to do that. Um, but by that time was my senior year, too late to apply to grad school's. Um, so I took a year off and I did an internship at the Audubon Center for Research of Endangered Species in New Orleans. Nice. It doesn't exist anymore as a research institution, but the Audubon Institute and the zoo is still there. Um, so I did, it was about a six-month internship and it was mostly husbandry. So cleaning up poop, cleaning cages, chopping food, skinning mice, stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I was able to go watch the scientists do their science work. So I run to, over to the laboratories and I could watch... Um, like in vitro embryo production, or we could watch semen collections in animals, and that stuff was really cool. So that kind of, it really like solidified my desire to pursue graduate work in reproductive physiology. So I started looking into grad schools, and of course I wanted to work with like endangered species, and there aren't that many grad programs we can actually work with hands-on with wildlife and kind of gain the skills that I was looking to gain. Um, so I was still in touch with um, some of my professors from undergrad, and they recommended that I just go work with livestock. So learn the skills that I need um, to work to help wildlife species, but learn them on pigs and cows where I could get my hands on lots of animals. So that's what I did. So I, for my master's degree, I worked with beef cattle primarily, and we did a project where I was trying to sway the sex ratio in favor of one sex or the other in, in calves. And then for my PhD, I switched species and- whoa, swi- whoa,
1: whoa, 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 whoa. First of all, I thought I talked fast, but, um, oh my gosh, tell me about that. Like, tell me about that. What, what you, you're switching the sex ratio and how did you do it? And like, let like, tell me your thoughts and did it work? And you know, I'm guessing not from the look on your face, but we'll get there. But tell me things.
0: Yeah. So the typical sex ratio is 50, 50 in most mammal species. So sperm are produced 50% X bearing sperm and 50% Y bearing sperm. That's how males make them. Um, but in some industries like the livestock industry, it's more desirable to have one sex versus the other. So in the dairy industry, male calves are pretty much worthless. They don't produce milk. So in the dairy industry, they want more female calves because those are the ones that grow up and make them more money. Um, In the beef cattle industry, they tend to want more male calves because they grow faster than the females. So opposite opposite desires, but still kind of the same idea. They want more of one sex versus the other. So one of the ways that we were trying to do that, um, there was actually, it was a commercially available um, little vial of, Magic. We don't know what actually was in it because it was proprietary. Um, But you pretty much mixed it in with a a already collected semen sample, so semen can be frozen in these straws. Um, So we would thaw the straw of semen, mix it with this little vial of stuff, and then use it to inseminate the cows. Um, And then we'd go in with ultrasonography and then try to determine what sex the calves were, the fetuses were, and then also when once they were born to to double confirm. Um, And it turned out it didn't work at all, so it did not sway the sex ratio at all. So. From a student standpoint, it was disappointing that we didn't get more exciting results, but we still got an answer. So the question was, does this product sway the sex ratio in favor of male or females? And it didn't. Um, And along the way, I learned a lot of good skills. I learned how to do estrus detections and heat checks in cattle. Um, I learned how to do ultrasonography. I learned how to um, sex embryos by PCR. I learned how to take blood.
1: What is PCR?
0: PCR is polymerase chain reactions. that's a scientific um, technique where you can amplify DNA to determine, like, paternity, for example. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then for sexing, we would amplify the Y chromosome to see if it was there or not. Um, so learned how to do that, and that was kind of my foot into the door of, like, hard lab science, like real science. Um, but it definitely got my i made me more interested in molecular biology in general. So that was my master's.
1: <laughs> that's real—I mean, that's really cool. That's real—you have to remember, you're talking to a drummer, okay? <laughs> so, like, I mean, I could tell you what a paradiddle is, but— uh, Wow, all of that is just so far over my head, and i but in a really cool way, like I'm so fascinated by this kind of stuff. Yeah. I really am and i I came to this fascination later in life, so I am just like like hearing all of this is blowing my mind. That's so cool. And the fact that you were just there, like you were just a grad student and you're like, yeah, hey, no, this is where I'm at. I just, I want to do this. And, and that's really cool. Um, so then, then what happened after that?
0: So then I went on, I stayed at the same school, Clemson university for my PhD, but I switched species. So I went from beef cattle to pigs and I went a little bit more molecular. So I did more work in the lab, um, relative to with the animals. So for my PhD research, I was looking at these tiny molecules called microRNAs that are present in sperm cells and eggs and embryos and seeing if they, um, how they changed throughout development and if they were different in different types of, of samples. So in vivo produced embryos, so embryos produced by the pig versus in vitro produced embryos, embryos produced in a lab. To so sort of comparing the microRNA profiles um, between those two groups and at different stages in development. And it made me love pigs. Nice. So it was my first time working with pigs ever. And um, I, I really got a good sense of how intelligent they are, um, how smart they are, how fun they were to work with for me. Um, so I got to do a lot of work with artificial inseminations. And I trained a lot of students how to help me and develop these estrus grading scales and artificial insemination grading scales. Um, we learned how to do embryo flushes, which is neat. So flushing the embryos from the uterus. Oh, wow. So that's a neat okay. experience. We also did a lot of work at slaughterhouses, too. So sometimes we tr- try to capitalize. These pigs were destined for slaughter anyway. They were meat animals. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes we would just sort of follow the pigs to the slaughterhouse and then collect their reproductive tracts after slaughter, which I know it sounds sort of morbid. Um,
1: no, but- just the opposite. I mean, it that's great. If they're going to go, take full advantage of it. Right. You know, I mean. That actually, I never considered doing something like that before, Mm -hmm. but that's really cool.
0: Yeah, so sort of an example of how we utilize that stuff today, not a slaughterhouse example, but we have a team at CREW who studies cat reproduction. Um, They study exotic cat reproduction, but what they do is they go to veterinarians that spay many cats in a day. So there's a, um, a local group where they spay like 80 cats in a single day. So we'll go pick up the ovaries and then collect the oocytes from those ovaries from these cats that were being spayed and the reproductive tracts would otherwise be thrown away. So we can, we
1: can learn a lot from sort of those byproducts from animals. Wow. That's really interesting. And okay. So I'm, I'm curious about the transfer of those types of things. Like, is this something where you can just go and grab them? I mean, I know that the, the vets would only release them to someone. It's not like a listener could go and do this, but do you need, oh boy, I don't, know. Good, yeah. I don't know, but do you need permits or is this literally just a thing where you can be like, Hey, I'm a nerd. Can I, you know, can I do this?
0: Yeah. We didn't need any permits to collect any of the samples we needed because they don't come from endangered or right, right. threatened species. Um, so we would literally drive to the slaughterhouse with a thermos and they would hand us a bag of ovaries, like 50 ovaries, 200 ovaries, depending on the day and just plop it in this thermos. We'd seal the lid and then we'd drive back to Clemson where we processed all the, all the samples. Those would usually be long days. So we'd wake up early to drive two and a half hours to the slaughterhouse, get the samples, come back and then spend the rest of the day collecting eggs from the samples.
1: Yeah. I am beyond <laughs> shocked right now that's amazing that's really cool though I yeah mean, um is that a thing that like is common is this happening a lot or? it is okay. yeah it's probably
0: I, I would bet you most slaughterhouses have some deal worked out with local universities or research groups um, where they're interested in sample and maybe it's not ovaries and stuff like that right, but right. maybe it's liver tissue or eyes or whatever it is that their group is studying so we have some species that are really easy to keep in a laboratory like mice and rabbits but when you get into some of the larger species you know, most universities, some universities, but not all, have like beef cattle
1: and pigs. Cool. So, um, what was your uh, doctoral thesis about then?
0: So, my doctoral thesis was. Let me see if I can remember the exact title. <laughs> the, the identification and expression of microRNAs in porcine so pig gametes and embryos.
1: All right. Cool. And and what 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 did you find? Tell me. Tell me. What you discovered? So, in this. what
0: we discovered. So, at the time, microRNAs were sort of this brand new molecule that was discovered. So, we were the first to identify certain microRNAs in these tissues. So, we identified brand new ones as well as some that were previously described in other species. Um, we found that they are different in in vivo versus in vitro produced embryos. Um, they were also different in sperm that were considered to be low motility sperm versus high motility sperm. So, we thought that that might make a good biomarker for like fertility. Um, yeah. And I think that was
1: it. I mean, that's (laughs) that's a lot. It's been a little while. I'm still fascinated by the idea that there are like new molecules that you're discovering Mm -hmm. in animals and stuff. How, I mean, I guess to, to my brain, it's like we, you know, short of newly discovered species and such, um, Mm. we've had all these things for a while. How much are we still learning about the, the basic physiology of animals?
0: (laughs) We're still learning a lot, even in species that are widely studied, so, yeah, so microRNAs were discovered, I think it was, like, 2001 or 2005. So, in the, you know, if you think about the history of science, that's pretty recent. Yeah. Um, and since microRNAs, they've discovered a whole new class of small RNAs, which are regulatory molecules as well. Um, yeah, they're still discovering new stuff all the time, which is really cool. Yeah, that's... And, that, that's and not so just cool. in animals, too. These same molecules exist in humans. So we're finding that they're, you know, we use animals as models, but it's definitely a lot of this information is translatable to human medicine.
1: Okay, cool. That's that's awesome. So then, what what after school?
0: So after school, as uh, my program was winding down, I started looking at the job boards. Um, refresh, refresh every day, looking for some <laughs> some zoo job. I was well, I was interested in wildlife, so I was open to like government agencies, so Fish and Wildlife Service, or U.S. Geological Survey, zoos, um, some other you know private wildlife um, companies. But as I was finishing up, I saw this job posting by Cincinnati Zoo and Crew. And I was familiar with Crew because there aren't that many research centers like Crew located in the U.S. So I kind of knew about all of them and sort of what they all did. I knew that Crew studied rhinos and cat species, endangered cat species. And I was like, oh, I'd love to study rhinos or endangered cat species. So it was a postdoc position. So I I applied to the position and I uh, got a phone interview. And during the phone interview, like I was prepped to talk about rhinos and cats. You know, I, I knew all their research. I'd read all their papers But it came up pretty early in the conversation that they had started this new project, which was focusing on polar bears. I was like, oh, okay." Like, I'd never thought about polar bears before, but it sounded like a really cool project. And I would have worked on anything that needed it, any sort of endangered or threatened species. They all interested me. So but it was just kind of brand new and not what I was expecting. Um, But yeah, I was all in. So I was excited to get the job and to move to Cincinnati after I graduated.
1: Very cool. And um, polar bears, Mm -hmm. they're not doing so great. Yeah
0: they're, they're, yeah, they're struggling. So yeah, yeah in the wild, we think there are about twenty to 25,000 polar bears um, out in the wild in the Arctic. So there are 19 subpopulations of polar bears. Some are increasing, some are decreasing, some are stable. Um, but overall, we know that their environment is slowly going away, and that's the biggest concern. So if they don't have ice to hunt from, then they can't find food, they can't reproduce. So over time, their population um, rates will decline.
1: I heard a weird thing and I don't remember what the source was so this could be complete BS or it could be like really accurate but I'll ask you (laughs) um I I heard that what some people are expecting will happen is that um as the, the climate continues to warm and as ice disappears, polar bears will be forced more south. And since they're already hard to find each other sometimes for breeding, they're more likely to breed with grizzlies. And that it's more likely that polar bears won't so much go as go extinct. Uh, you know, they will, but that they'll more kind of turn into pisleys.
0: Yeah, so the uh, hybridization. Is that real yeah, yeah okay. it's very All real right. and it's happened. There's already been documented cases of hybridization between polar bears and brown bears. So I think, I can't remember which one's which, but if like the mom is a brown bear and the dad is a polar bear, then I think they're a growler bear. Right, right. But if the opposite is like a pizzly, but I don't remember which is which. It's
1: like how if you're you're Jewish, if your mom's Jewish kind of thing, it's it's the same thing. Yeah, it's very strange nomenclature to me. But yeah, yeah, okay. So that is, it's been
0: documented. And what's interesting too, in a lot of species where two species can breed, usually the offspring is sterile. So like a horse and a donkey produce a mule, but mules are sterile. But with brown bears and polar bears, their offspring are not sterile. They can reproduce. So you can have that roller bear hybrid that then, then can go on and breed with either a brown bear or a polar bear.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Cool. Um, And for a long time, I think I think the average person, and I, I'm guessing most people who listen to the podcast know this is not the case, but I feel like the average person thinks that the delineation of species is simply based on, whether they can reproduce or not. And I, I hear that from a lot of people that I talk to. And we know that's not true. There are ligers, there are pisleys, there's all kinds of stuff. But um, is it is it weird to you that, that, that they can hybridize? Or is that just one of those like myths where as somebody who actually studies this stuff, you're like, no, no, you all just don't understand how this works.
0: Yeah, no, I don't think it's too shocking that they can hybridize because they are so similar. And probably they came from one species at some point in time. Yeah, I'm trying to think of two other species that might be... As
1: similar that hybridize,
0: but can't think of one right now. Gotcha. Actually, they're talking about red pandas becoming ju- two species. I was so, actually
1: just going to say, so yeah. if you buy into the the latest, and I mean, I, I was told it's that a it's pretty pretty sound paper. Yeah, that, that, you know, styani and and uh, Fulgens are two different. Yeah, species, and I'm
0: not you know. an, I'm not an expert in like population genetics by any means, but it sounds like they've determined, or some folks are kind of coming to the mindset that the. They are two separate species indeed, but I'm pretty sure that they can still interbreed. Yes, they definitely can. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So okay, that that works. That's yeah. That's, yeah. Okay. Very cool. Um, thank you for dispelling that myth a little bit. Cause I think I hear that from people literally like just wandering zoos and stuff all the time. Yeah. Like, oh, that's what makes a, a species different. And I'm like, I'm just gonna turn on my noise canceling headphones and keep walking. But um, yeah, okay, very cool. So you got here mm-hmm. and they were like polar bears. And polar bears. at the time, the zoo had polar.
0: Yeah. So when I came here, we had three polar bears, Barrett, Rizzo, and Little One. So they were all recommended for breeding by the Species Survival Plan. So Little One was supposed to breed with both of them. And we saw them breeding, but they never produced cubs. So my main challenge and priority at work was to try to develop a pregnancy test for polar bears. So right now we have <laughs> no way of determining whether or not... A polar bear is pregnant. Okay. Yeah. So like humans, you know, we have this pee on a stick test. You know, the woman pees on a stick and the embryo produces this little hormone that comes out in mom's urine. And that's how we know if a human is pregnant. And that same pee on a stick test works in the great apes, but it doesn't work in any other species. Okay. And we don't know if other species have unique hormones like that, that are indicators of pregnancy. Um, not to
1: mention that training them to pee on a stick would be horrible.
0: (laughs) That probably wouldn't be the hardest part. I think, (laughs) I think figuring out what to look for is the hardest part. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so we've, um, that's one of the things, one of the things I've been working on for the last 10 years is trying to develop some pregnancy tests, try to figure out what a biomarker pregnancy might be for this species. And hopefully it could be applied to other species as well.
1: So how do you do that now that you don't have polar bears here?
0: So I work with all, pretty much all of the polar bears in zoos throughout North America. So zoos collect fecal samples from uh, from me for me on a regular <laughs> <laughs> for me on a regular basis. I'm so leaving that in. If that's okay. I figured you would. Okay, thank yeah. you. <laughs> so they collect um, samples from their bears for me on a regular basis, and they ship me the samples on ice. You
1: just said they ship me instead <laughs> of they ship me.
0: <laughs> I did not. <laughs> we'll see. He'll probably leave that one in too.
1: Probably this. Yeah, this is going in on this is great. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so, so they'll send me those samples on ice. Um, And then I'll look for whatever hormone that I think might be the hormone of interest. Um, Yeah. So, in a lot of species, we can measure progesterone. Progesterone is like the pregnancy hormone. Right. We know progesterone increases during pregnancy in most species. But polar bears and red pandas and otters and mustelids um, in general, they all have this increase in progesterone even though they're not pregnant. So, even non-pregnant females will have this. So, we can't use progesterone as a pregnancy diagnostic test like we can in some other species. Um, so we know that's out. So I've been looking at fecal, um, fecal proteins to see if there are any proteins that are present in pregnant versus non-pregnant bears. Um, so yeah, those things.
1: That's really cool. That's very interesting. And Uh, I assume at least that since, since brown bears are so close that it would probably, I mean, I know we don't know since we don't have it yet, Mm -hmm. but work for that. Would it work? Do you you think hypothetically, if you find this protein, Mm -hmm. um, that it would work across the board for other things that you were talking about too, as far as red pandas, muscleitids, I uh, think it could.
0: Yes. It's, it probably would depend on where, so like placenta type. So if it's a protein that's produced by the placenta, a lot of species have different placenta types. But if they were the same type as a polar bear, then it might work in other species. Okay. And um, a lot of carnivores have similar placenta types, so it could work in them too.
1: Very cool. Um, I'm just I'm just fascinated by all of this, and I love that like you're this is your job, and mm-hmm. you are paid to do this yeah. by a zoo. Yeah, and I'm and really
0: again. lucky that I get paid to. Th- think about something that I'm already interested in. Yeah,
1: that's amazing. And also that this isn't going to help the Cincinnati Zoo day-to-day getting visitors in. This,
0: right.
1: this is, I mean, don't get me wrong, it'll help animal welfare and there's a lot of good that can come from this. I'm, I know that. Right. But they are funding you to help animals in a wider context than just like... Oh, uh, what about our zoo? You know, like yeah. that's, that's really Yeah.
0: The cool. Cincinnati Zoo is committed to conservation and research. So yeah, we're fortunate to have our crew facility here on zoo grounds, which is also
1: excellent That's amazing. where
0: we can hopefully do great things.
1: So, all right. So tell me about crew a little bit more in general, mm-hmm. um, like how Big is it? How many many people are here? Mm-hmm. Um, where is it located on the grounds? Can people see it, or is it in the behind the scenes area? Just talk about Crew because it's so yeah. cool.
0: So Crew is a, a, a full research center located on the periphery of the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, we're located right across from the vet hospital, so we're a little off the beaten path. Um, right now, there's some construction right in front of our building, so we're pretty off the beaten path. But <laughs> no- on normal days, most folks could just walk up. Um, we before the construction stuff sort of happened, we were open to the public from like noon till 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. We also do a lot of tours for school groups and campers and even business groups sometimes come through just to tour the facility. Um, We have four signature projects. So those are the the areas where we focus most of our time and efforts. So those signature projects are rhino species, so all the world's endangered rhinos, and that's led by Dr. Terry Roth. Um, We work on imperiled cat species. So previously it was just um, small cat species like ocelots, fishing cats, sand cats, um, the little guys. More recently, we've been expanding to larger cats like jaguars and tigers and stuff like that nice. too, which is neat. Um, we work on exceptional plants. So most people, when we think about endangered species, we don't think about plants. Our mind, most people's minds go directly to animals. Oh yeah, I'm bored already. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> you lost me. That <laughs> quick. You, need, you, need to come, you need Yeah,
0: we'll have you interview one of the the plant scientists next time. Um, but we have an entire division dedicated to studying the world's endangered plants. Nice. And then the fourth signature project is the polar bear project. So that's the one that I currently lead. And more recently, we've been sort of branching out a little bit into other
1: bear species as well. Very cool. And and how like how big is your team in such?
0: So right now, we are small. Um, so we, us- we rely on a lot of volunteer and intern help. Um, so we have another full-time staff member coming to join me in July. She's coming from Utah State University. Um. But most of my work is done with the help of interns and volunteers right now. But
1: that's still part of the team. It sure I mean, is. Come on, that's yeah. the important part of the right. team. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so like on an average day, how many people, you know, might be in the building? Just curious.
0: Yeah. So right now, I think we have, I'll have to count them. We have about 15 full-time staff
1: members. I mean, that's freaking amazing. Yeah. This is the point that I want to make. It's not even just that they're funding you. Or they're funding four of you. Mm-hmm. It's that there is all of this. Plus, even having volunteers and interns, that is resources. Absolutely. That is time commitment. That is interviews. That mm-hmm. is all of this stuff that Cincy is funding, which I think is just amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah. I'm you so passionate. Sh- you should come for a tour of
1: the crew building. I want to. Yeah. I, okay, so I, this is a true story that I'm a little embarrassed by. But um, I, I didn't know about crew for a while mm-hmm. and when I started coming here. And then I, I learned about it, and I was, like, obsessed with the idea. And... Um, you know, I knew it was open from 12 to 3 every day and I would come to the zoo and I would be like, I'm going to crew today and every freaking time between the pandas and Lucille, every freaking time I missed it and it would be like 4 o'clock and I'd be getting ready to start to leave or 5 o'clock depending on when y'all were closing, you know, yeah. seasonally and I'd be like, no, ah, I forgot. It happened literally like a dozen times. I'm not exactly. we'll, we'll
0: right fix that. Now. So, so yeah. next time you come into the area, yeah, shoot yeah. me an email. We'll do it the whole tour. Yeah,
1: sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I really want to to see this. I'm so fascinated by it. Yeah, but so I have,
0: just get distracted by pretty things. Especially, yeah, I get <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. But we have a full research facility. So we have many laboratories. We have an endocrine lab. We have a gamete biology laboratory. We have um, about a dozen liquid nitrogen tanks where we have frozen sperm samples and embryos from about 125 different species, everything from penguins to rhinoceros and everything in between. Um, we also have a ton of plant species stored there. Um, as I mentioned, greenhouses. We have a public exhibit area. We're calling it the um, Crew Exploratorium, which is under construction right now. Nice. So that'll be pr- pretty neat. We have a almost life-size rhino that you can practice your ultrasound skills on. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so
1: that'll be fun. That's so cool. And since we are talking about ultrasounds... Uh, I need you to tell everyone what we just did because it was so cool.
0: <laughs> so we just got back from a red panda ultrasound. It was so, cool. so we've been ultrasounding our red pandas weekly. We have three females right now. One female, she, Lynn, she's in a breeding situation. So we're hoping that she's pregnant this year. But we also know she's getting up there in age. So she's about nine now, I think. So she's kind of on the edge of maybe we might start to see her fertility declining. But that's how we're ultrasounding her to see. And she has
1: had all. The Cubs. And so they are pups. so wildly successful and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, anyone who has listened to the podcast and, and Paul Reinhardt's episodes and everything, um, you know, we're, we're talking about Lucas and we're talking about Mimi and all of these, these pandas that you've heard about, Audra and Lenore, who were the ones that, that we got to see today. Um, they are all Lynn's babies mm-hmm. and they are literally some of the most adorable I agree. and and well-behaved and wonderful like it's it is an insane genetic line it mm-hmm. is so cool and uh Cora at Columbus who you've also heard me talk about a lot and um, Cora also comes from here and then so Santi and Bandit and all of those that you've heard about on this podcast are all this is all one line and it is just magical
0: hands down the Cincinnati Zoo line is the cutest line of red pandas I mean I, it's, not it's not even a fact an,
1: yeah. yeah no and this is this is a doctor saying this and this is this is a fact um and and so today it was Audrey and Lenore, Today it was
0: Aldrin Lenore. Yep. so they're not breeding this year but we thought it'd be a good idea to start practicing with them so and you, uh, you could see how the, the team works with these guys and they have a great relationship with their caretakers um, so it's funny you open the doors and both pandas are almost fighting to see who can go first to stand up amazing. in the ultrasound scan because they're ready to participate and jump right in there and for a lot of animals, putting the ultrasound gel on them, on their hair, a lot of animals don't like that. But these girls, you can see, they didn't even flinch putting the three globs of jelly onto their fur. It
1: them. was so much jelly, too. Like, so, you had to do so much because I like the fur. Is, yeah,
0: three yeah. three globs. Yeah. It's a
1: measurement in science. So, globs <laughs> of gel. <laughs> but yeah, so, they're great. Were they always, like, comfortable with it? The From first the first time. time. Okay. Yeah,
0: so the team, so Paul and his team worked with them, like, they're having r- rubbing their bellies and sort of, like, mimicking what I would do. But... In previous years, not all the females have been that good. Right. Um, but these girls, they, they took to it from the first step. It was first day we ultrasound them. They were great. So we're doing another project with them this year with all the red pandas. Um, so we've been doing this infrared thermography or in thermal imaging project where we're trying to see—so let me back up. There was a paper published a few years ago in Brown Bears where they implant a temperature sensor into the abdomens of the brown bears. So they did like a surgical incision, put this little temperature sensor in there, sent them back out. And what they found from these females is that around the time that the embryo implants, their temperature shot up by about four degrees. And they maintained that higher temperature through pregnancy, and then it dropped down around the time they gave birth. So this was in pregnant females. And they didn't see that change in temperature in non-pregnant females. Nice. So it's cool, but it's a little... We can't go around sticking (laughs) intra-abdominals, doing surgeries on every red panda or polar bear in the population. So what I wanted to see is can we use infrared thermography or thermal imaging to get... um, temperatures from the animal's eyes every day and see if we can detect that change just from pictures of their face. So the team has been taking pictures of all three red pandas um, every day for the last four months. Um, and we're going to go back and analyze the data and see if we can. So, and hopefully if Lynn is pregnant and has cubs this year, we'll see that change in temperature in Lynn, but we won't see it in her daughters who are not pregnant. So we have our we have our pregnant female and we have our control females living right next
1: to her. This is ridiculous. Okay. First of all, how the heck did you come up with that idea?
0: So I came up with, it. I read the paper and it was something that always interested me, but I didn't see how it was, how I could apply that to our right. polar bears in zoos. Um, and then about a year ago, I started working with a team from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and they were interested in using thermal imaging to assess um, metabolic rates in wildlife species. So we've been using this thermal imaging to see if we can calculate respiration rate and heart rate totally non-invasively. So pretty much we point this camera at the animals, we record like 15 seconds, and at the same time we put a stethoscope on them. So then we go back and we kind of compare the data. We extract all the data from the images and see if the heart rates that they calculate based on changes in thermal signature match the heart rates that we actually got by stethoscope. So that's what kind of got me interested in the thermal imaging, but I'm just using it now for reproductive monitoring instead of health monitoring.
1: Right, right. That's, that's so cool. This is so cool. Um, and so is that the project that you did that that got you the honor of having a panda named after you? No. No, that, <laughs> no, was, a no, that was a different project. Okay, so yeah. what
0: project was that? That one was just r- routine ultrasound monitoring. So we published um, I think two papers on red panda reproduction. The first was that we can utilize ultrasonography to diagnose pregnancy and compare that to hormone profiles. So we weren't the first ones to show that the hormones don't sh- don't give us the information we need. So pro- that progesterone profile I talked mm-hmm. about, it's kind of the same in pregnant versus pseudopregnant females, even though we know by ultrasound that, that pseudopregnant female is not pregnant. So we can confirm that pseudopregnancy does exist by ultrasound. And the second paper we published more recently was about the incidence of pregnancy loss in red pandas. So we found that um, a number of embryos that we can detect on ultrasound go away and seem to be reabsorbed into the female. So, we're wondering how many pregnancies are lost, what might be causing this loss? Because even Lynn has experienced lost pregnancies. So, in the past, she'll have, we'll see two babies on ultrasound, but then she'll just give birth to one cub. So, why did that other one die during pregnancy? And, you know, just trying to figure out some of the possible reasons for pregnancy failure in this species. Because Cincinnati Zoo does an awesome job at breeding red pandas, but some other um, institutions don't have as high a success rates as we do. So they see their pandas breeding, but they don't produce cubs. Right. So maybe, uh, this makes me wonder, maybe they are getting pregnant, but then losing their pregnancy somewhere along the way.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, now I could obviously talk red panda stuff all day, but um, we probably shouldn't, probably. So um, have we covered all of the red panda stuff, he asks, hoping the answer is no.
0: I think we covered all
1: the red pandas.
0: I can probably send you a thermal image of the red panda. Ooh. We're calling it Project
1: Infrared Panda. Mary, maybe (laughs) not. That's amazing. That's so good. Okay. So Okay. So you said something to me while we were with the girls that threw me a little bit, but then stupid cute red panda faces were there and I got distracted. So I'll ask you on the podcast. You said to me that you were studying red pandas and it is similar to polar bears. And Mm -hmm. I have met many red pandas. And while I have not met a polar bear, I've been very close to them through glass and stuff. And um, if you didn't have a doctor in front of your name, I don't think I would be buying into that. But can you explain to me (laughs) how the heck you are learning about polar bears by studying red pandas?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So... They have a lot of things from a reproductive standpoint that are similar between bears and mustelids. So, so are you saying are, that
1: we could crossbreed a red? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we could I try. Go, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: <laughs> so, they're both seasonal breeders. They have a pretty well defined breeding season. So, for polar bears, it's in the springtime February, March, April. For um, red pandas, it's usually a little earlier, February ish. And then they both have this um, phenomena called delayed implantation or embryonic diapause. So, if an embryo is formed as a result of that breeding, It grows to the blastocyst stage, which is like the size of a grain of sand, and then it stops growing. So it sort of sits around the uterus for a period of time. In polar bears, it sits around the uterus from like April through September, October, and then it implants in the uterus, and then true placental pregnancy, true gestation occurs, and that we think lasts about 60 days in polar bears. In red pandas, the time frame's a little shorter, so they have that diapause that lasts from February until like maybe late April. So that's a long time, two months for an embryo to sit around not doing much, and it implants in the uterus, and we think that their um, true gestation or placental pregnancy is also about 60 days. Um, they can both experience pseudo pregnancies as well, so that makes them another reason they're a good model for polar bear reproduction. Um, the major difference is that red pandas are so much more tra- tractable than a polar bear is, so we can easily get our hands on them, do these ultrasounds on them. Um, polar bears go into this really strong denning mode when they're pregnant, so we've trained polar bears for ultrasound in the past, so they've been trained to come up to the mesh and they kind of present their bellies to us. We can stick an ultrasound probe through the mesh and safely ultrasound them. But around the time that we would actually start being able to answer some questions, they don't want to participate anymore. Gotcha. So that's kind of why I like the red pandas. Okay.
1: That's a, that's a good reason. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. some For some endangered species, we have really good model species that are domesticated. So for the, the giant cats, the, the large cats, and even the small cats, we can use domestic cats right. as a model. We don't have anything like that for bears. You know, we can't have a little black bear colony. Um, There's not, like, a good dogs aren't good models for them. Mice aren't good models. So it's good that I can use red pandas for that.
1: Oh, that's so cool. I love this so much. Just so much. Um, And, you know, talking about the polar bear population in zoos, Mm -hmm. um, especially in the United States, it is my understanding, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong. um, Drummer is my qualification for this. um, But it is my understanding that because of certain laws and such— that um we can't import polar bears at all even like injured bears and stuff and yeah. the population is old and is not breeding super well so first of all up your game lady <laughs> but uh, no but seriously but like what's gonna happen to the polar bear population because i know since he's not getting new polar bears that mm-hmm. whole areas you know they've announced their plans and it's gonna be great mm-hmm. but it's not gonna be polar bears um philly when they lost coldy locks it's mm-hmm. now a penguin exhibit yeah. um it's not easy. And what, what's not. going to happen?
0: Yeah. So right now, polar bears are protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So we cannot import them from the wild. So, you know, we don't want to take animals from the wild. Ideally, we would have them just breed in, in zoos and maintain a population that way. It's not our goal to go out and take bears, capture um, cubs from the wild. Um, but right now, it's it's illegal, essentially, to bring them in. So there have been, I think, just two cases in the last 12 years or so where we've brought in uh, orphan cubs from Alaska. So one went to the Louisville Zoo, and one is at St. Louis Zoo. So we have one male and one female. But we're not allowed to breed them because they're technically owned by Fish and Wildlife. They're under the purview of Fish and Wildlife Service. So, yeah, and right now we have an aging population of bears. So they're all getting up there in age. Um, back in the day, we had a lot of polar bears in zoos. We we're bringing them in from the wild. So at one point, a breeding moratorium was applied where zoos were told, don't breed your bears because we don't have enough space for them. So around that time, um, polar bears were put on contraception. So many females didn't produce offspring, so having contributed their genetics to the population. And, um, and yeah, right now, only about 10% of females that breed each year actually go on to produce cubs.
1: Jeez. Yeah,
0: so the reproductive rates are very low. So one of the reasons that I think a pregnancy test would be useful is it could tell us where, that, where is this failing? Are they getting pregnant and losing them somewhere along the way? Or are they just not getting pregnant at all? So what happens? It's a great question. I don't know. I don't I don't have a great answer for that. Um, See, this
1: is why when I, when I talk to like keepers and other people, they're like, oh, here's what I think. But you're like a scientist <laughs> and you need facts. And you're just like, I don't know. Shut up. Get me some evidence and I'll tell you what's going to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah. But on, on the flip side, Canada is full of polar bears. So all the okay. Canadian zoos, um, they're maxed out on space. They can't take in any more bears. So all of their um, like nuisance bears and orphan cubs that come in, they're really struggling to find space for the bears in Canada. So I wonder if at some point um, regulations will be lifted a little bit and some of this spillover can come down into the U.S. because bears need a home.
1: Yeah, I I can understand. I mean, I am very anti-pulling things out of the wild, Mm -hmm. as is the AZA in in most cases, you Mm -hmm. know? And and I'm, you know, nobody wants to go and hunt polar bear cubs for, I mean, people want to, I'm sure. But like, that's Mm -hmm. not what we are talking about here. But there are nuisance bears. There are abandoned cubs. There's all kinds of stuff. And, and is there any push for legislation like this? Is there any, I mean, I know it's impossible to, you know, pass laws right now, but, but like beyond that, um, you know, and that is my comment and not, not the, uh, the view of the Cincinnati Zoo. Um, But uh, is, is there anything being done for that? Because it seems like we have great facilities. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there is a push and we're trying to get permits um, approved now from Fish and Wildlife Service to do more research on some of these bears so that we can learn things about these bears that we have, access to and then apply it to wild populations all the stuff that we can learn and there's so much that we can learn from zoo bears that we can't so many things we can study that we can't study from wild bears you know wild bears you study most of them by helicopter so you can maybe maybe if they're going to be captured once a year if that and that sounds like a lot Um, but bears in zoos we can collect samples from them every single day we have polar bears trained to give voluntary blood samples so bears that'll put their paws into a blood cuff and allow a a keeper or vet staff to take a blood sample from them which is so impressive yeah So yeah, to me, it'd be great if the federal agencies could recognize the value of what we do in zoos and how that could help
1: conserve animals in the wild. It's so weird to me, too, that they don't with polar bears because they do with other species. I mean, um, you know, the California condor is always my favorite example. But as I've interviewed people at time and again, it's yeah, we collect some of these out of the wild to save endangered species and to get information and and. It's never a problem. And then with polar bears, they're like, nope. Meanwhile, the polar bear population is dropping like crazy. And right. it's like, what? I don't understand. Yeah. I
0: think part of the rub is that they're also, they're not only protected by Fish and Wildlife Service, but the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So okay. their regulations are a lot more strict, is my understanding. Gotcha. Okay. Well. Marine mammals. Yeah.
1: I I, I, I get it. I do. Like protecting animals is so important, mm-hmm. but sometimes I think you, you cut off your nose to spite your face a little bit with, mm-hmm. with some of these re- legislation. Exactly. Leg- I can I can speak. You can talk good. I host a podcast. But um, anyway, um, cool. So have you ever uh, had any like wild experience with, with polar bears or anything?
0: So a few years ago, I went up to Churchill, Manitoba for a, a zoo-led trip, actually. So we brought a group of folks up with us. And we went out in the tundra buggies out on oh, the nice. ice. And we saw the polar bears out there. The first bears that we saw was a mom and two cubs. Ah. So if we would saw no other polar bears the entire trip, I would have been happy with that first day. <laughs> um, but we saw we saw probably 15 bears total. So they were all kind of hanging out, waiting for the sea ice to form before they could go out and start their hunting season. Um, and you can get pretty close to them in those tundra buggies. They're like, wow. I don't know if you've seen them. They're like big um, yeah. school buses with huge tires. And yeah, they're really neat.
1: They um, have a full replica of one at uh, the Maryland Zoo. Zuma yes, Zuma's they one. do. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's awesome. I yeah. love it there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So that was my my first experience with wild polar bears. And then in about three weeks um, from now, I'm going to Norway. <gasps> to up to Svalbard just oh, see that population of polar so bears. Cool. So that'll be, that'll be an experience too. And that's all from a ship. So instead of the tundra buggy, we're doing a ship. And um, yeah, we'll get to go up. to It's the northernmost city in the world. And then we're yeah. taking a ship from Longyearbyen up to Svalbard and hopefully see a bunch of polar bears as well as a lot of other wildlife species up there. So this one's called an Arctic Safari. It's with um, Poseidon Adventures. So they're sort of leading the trip.
1: Nice. So, yeah, it'll be fun. Oh, that's amazing love that so much um what what would you say is your favorite or a couple favorite species is it polar bears of course it's polar bears okay. yeah yeah i figured but I, you never know right i know people who work with one species their whole life and you know have another one that they like more I'll yeah ask.
0: I, I, I always start to love the species that i work with so in mm-hmm. grad school i i grew this like fond appreciation for beef cattle i love cows now then i start working with pigs love pigs um polar bears of course um and then red pandas everyone loves red pandas obviously yeah. I, so, I loved
1: them before it was cool, I'm just saying. <laughs> Red so, panda hipster.
0: Yeah. There's, there's, I see all oh your stickers.
1: Oh
0: yeah. Yeah. So they um, yeah, I'd say those are my top four, but I, I also love um domestic dogs and cats too.
1: Sure. Yeah. yeah. Who, who doesn't? Um who are some of your favorite animals at the zoo?
0: My favorite animals at the zoo. Well, my if you asked me a few years ago, I would have said little one and Anana are our, sure,
1: yeah. our polar bears that were here. RIP friends. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um currently. I'd say um, Lynn is high up on my list because I've been ultrasounding Lynn for the last, how old is Lynn? Eight years?
1: Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, probably
0: she, yeah. since she became, since she got into a breeding situation. So, every year, every breeding season weekly, I'd go out and do ultrasounds on Lynn. Um, so, she's high up
1: there. That's awesome. Yeah. And are you the person who, like, you know, discovered Audra and Lenore and Lucas? And it
0: would have been me. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't keep their, their date of birth straight, but sure, yeah, sure, I've been doing yeah. the Red yeah. Panda ultrasounds for a few years now. Sick. So, yeah, so first first views of all of them.
1: That's so awesome. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's just wonderful. Um, And and uh, I'm curious, I'm curious, do you ever just take the time to walk around the zoo as like a fan?
0: I do, yeah. So the best time to go is like early in the morning mm-hmm. when all the animals are out and they're active. Um, so yeah, I try to do that as often as I can. Um, and sometimes just if I've, I've been sitting at my computer for five hours writing and I can't write another sentence, I'll just get up and do a lap. And um, and come back and just you know I try to vary my loops up so I see different animals but yeah I definitely do that that's one of the benefits of working at the zoo is um even though I'm in an office or a lab most of the day I can still jump out and go see some animals
1: yeah I would imagine so yeah although ironically um today because of the schedule I literally I, I've been here since open and um I've I I don't get to do the zoo today yeah. at all <laughs> I've I've done the cool little things with with people and 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 neat experiences and met some ambassadors and and done a couple interviews but um I am at the Cincinnati Zoo from probably open to close today and will not actually have walked. Through. I will not see Fiona. Today, oh no. Yeah. Which is, which is fine. You know, <laughs> it's cool. I've, I've I've met Fiona. We're buds, but you know, but it's just, it's crazy to think about how, how busy you can get with stuff. Yeah. Um, and speaking of Fiona, um, Fiona is not pregnant, but she going to be a big sister. She's going to be a big and, sister. Um, so can you talk to me about that at all?
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the news is out. Fiona is going to have a little brother or sister sometime this summer. We think, so um, yeah, we diagnosed that BB was pregnant a few weeks ago. I think my timeline is kind of running together, but I think back in May, um, it was suggested that perhaps BB could be pregnant. We went out and did um, one ultrasound. I didn't see anything. I wasn't hippos are really hard to ultrasound because they have huge abdomens, and the ultrasound sound waves only penetrate like twenty four centimeters. So physically, you need to get that ultrasound probe close enough to the fetus to be able to see it. Gotcha. So in a big abdomen, it's really hard compared to a small abdomen. So first time I didn't see anything, but I didn't see any like indicator that she wasn't pregnant either. So I said, let's try it again next week. We tried it again next week. And that's when we saw the whole thing, the fetus, the whole thing, ribs, undeniably pregnant. Um, So everyone was kind of pleasantly shocked, I'd say. So, you know, it was an unplanned pregnancy. So BB had been on contraception. Oh, really?
1: I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's, all right. Go Tucker. Yeah. Yeah, So
0: um, they wanted to wait a few years, I think. Um, But yeah, um, nature finds a way. (laughs)
1: all right jeff goldblum (laughs) life finds a way but um i
0: think our curator christina gorsuch i think she she said that in her
1: interview nice yeah
0: life will find a way and tucker found a way
1: yeah yeah, good boy all right um so so we know what happened with fiona and obviously she's thriving now Mm -hmm. but is there concern is there risk are there steps that 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 the team is going to take how do you feel about this um both as somebody at Cincy, but also with your background in reproductive studies.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a concern. So the goal is to have a, a healthy term calf. You know, we don't know why exactly Fiona was born early, but we saw, um, in retrospect, we monitored her, her progesterone levels, and we saw that they did—they de- were pretty low throughout her pregnancy. So we wondered if um, maybe her progesterone was too low to maintain that pregnancy, and that's why she went into early labor. So, with um, Bibi, we're taking steps to put her on a little progesterone supplementation to hopefully maintain that through her pregnancy. Um, so far, so good. It seems to be working. And I think someone did the math and said that if it was, if she goes as early as Fiona, it'd be pretty soon. But we think she's going to hang on to this one, hopefully, full term.
1: That's so cool. I love science so much. Um, and even though Crew is the Cincinnati Zoo, um, y'all do stuff with other zoos because I know I just did a. Uh, a zoo news story um, about helping out with detecting some pregnancy at uh, Columbus. So how much um, how much consulting, or I don't know what you would yeah, call it, or sharing or whatever, but,
0: you know. I, I'd say most of my work is involved is working with other zoos. So right now we don't have polar bears well, here right, at Cincinnati. That, yeah. So, yeah, we do a lot of traveling for reproductive evaluations of both males and females. We want to see if the males are producing good sperm samples. We want to see if the females, if there's anything that we can see that might be wrong with them. We do a lot of hormone monitoring to see if females are actually cycling like they should be. Um, so, yeah, the majority of my work is done at other zoos. And this year, I think I've traveled to four or five or six different zoos for different procedures and projects and stuff like that.
1: Wow. Yeah. That's, that's fun. Um, And, and how much—so, okay, so I get it traveling for, like, what you were talking about. But also, how much—how frequently, how often will, like, a zoo just call up and be like, crew, help? Is there like one eight hundred go crew one? And you know. There should be. Or how does how does that yeah. work?
0: So that's pretty yeah, that's pretty common. So the zoo community is pretty tight knit and everyone pretty much has a good idea of what other scientists are working on. Um so if there is a zoo that's having problems with their I'll use polar bear for example, if they they're I'm shocked. Their polar bears are breeding every year, um, if but they're not producing cubs, um, then they'll usually contact the SSP, the species survival plan, and they'll say we well, should contact um crew and see what they have to say about it. So we usually start from the beginning and we'll do some hormone monitoring on the female to see if it looks like she's cycling, get a full history on her. Um, Then we can do examinations. If she's still not getting pregnant, we can try artificial insemination or ovulation induction with hormone injections. So there are some things that we can try to increase our chances of reproductive success. So it's like that for polar bears and it's like that for other species as well, just different areas of expertise.
1: Very cool. Um, What is the thing that you are the most proud of
0: in your Hmm. career? That's a good question. Um, I think that it probably hasn't happened yet.
1: <laughs> oh, no. You are such a so nerd. So my my
0: <laughs> my goal, I we want to figure out this pregnancy test right, thing. Right. And whatever that might look like, we've tried a lot of different things. We've tried um, looking at the fecal um, metabolomics, we've looked at volatile organ all these different compounds in a fecal sample. We tried training an odor detection dog to diagnose pregnancy. <sighs> So we have about... That might
1: be my favorite story that I've heard yet. <laughs> that was That's probably
0: amazing. my... So if you had asked me what's the most fun project you've ever worked on, that would be my answer. So we so we have all these fecal samples at crew. We have samples from about 80 different polar bears, um, probably 30,000 samples total, all frozen. We know the bear's histories. We know if they gave birth or not. So I, I started reading about these medical detection dogs, you know, and they're used to diagnose cancer. They can you know, smell prostate cancer from a urine sample, all these Mm -hmm. crazy things.
1: They're actually doing COVID now too. They are. They can, yeah, dogs'
0: noses, they live in a totally different world than we do. So I read um, one paper where they trained this dog to diagnose lung cancer from smelling breath samples from patients. And the dog's noses were so accurate and precise that they could distinguish lung cancer from like bronchitis or like other like respiratory illnesses so that sort of got my wheels turning, and I was like, okay, well, maybe we can train a polar bear to diagnose pregnancy from smelling fecal samples collected from pregnant versus non-pregnant bears.
1: You totally just said polar bear instead of dog. I probably did. You did. It's okay. amazing. I'm so happy with that. I just, I now just love the image of a, a polar bear sniffing. Another? But, yeah. 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 You know what I meant. I knew what you meant. Sorry. Yeah. I just, that was too cute not to... <laughs> <polar
0: bear. laughs> they might be able to tell, and we don't know. It's true. Yeah. So um, I reached out to some dog trainers, and um, the one, um, Matt Scogan out of Iron Heart Detection Dogs, he got back to me, and he was like, he's into supporting conservation, and he wanted to help with this project. So we sent him a whole bunch of fecal samples collected from polar bears that we had in our freezer, and I told him what they all were, and I said, just do. let me know how it goes. So first they started um, imp- imprinting him, they call it, on the samples collected from pregnant bears. So every time that he sniffs this pregnant sample, he sits, repeat, repeat, hundreds of times. Then they start introducing samples from individuals that would be the least like a pregnant bear. So in this case, it would be male bears. So they introduce the male samples, and he's never rewarded for signaling on a male sample. Right. So slowly they work up to introducing more and more and more samples until they're introducing the pseudo-pregnant samples, which are probably most similar to the pregnant samples. And they were reporting to me that he was working at like 94% accuracy, which I thought was like <laughs> impressive, but I, I wanted to see it for myself. So we took some samples that, Elvis was his name, the dog, Elvis, the dog had never seen and drove out to Kansas to meet with the trainer. I didn't tell the trainer what these samples were. And I said, let's tell me if these are from pregnant or not pregnant bears. And, um, Elvis got hundred percent of them right, right in front of me. So <laughs> I knew there was no, like, you know, not that I thought that this trainer, no, had, right.
1: But you wanted to see, yeah, for I wanted to see for yeah. myself.
0: Yeah. Um, so that was, I was really impressed. So that year we put out a call to all the zoos with polar bears in breeding situations. we said, Oh, we're doing this fun little project. Um, Send us your samples, we'll send them to Elvis, and Elvis will maybe tell us if your bear is pregnant or not. Well, the first year, of the 17 females that were on the study, only one female gave birth, and Elvis didn't signal on her samples. But not a high chance for success either when you only have one bear. So we, we, we repeated it the next year, and he didn't signal on this new female's pregnancy either. So backing up, we started to do some more training and evaluation, and what we think happened is that Elvis learned to memorize specific signatures associated with pregnancies that he was trained on. So the samples that I brought out there that he had never seen, they were taken from pregnancies that he had been trained on. Sure. So he could recognize them as being pregnant. He didn't, however, recognize the pre-estra samples from those same females. So he wasn't learning females. He was actually learning specific pregnancies. Okay. And then in talking to folks who are training these sniffer dogs, um, some of them are saying you need at least 100 unique cases of a disease or condition for the dog to stop memorizing and start generalizing. And in polar bear pregnancy world, we're not going to have 100 unique cases of pregnancy in the next 10 years. Right. So probably not feasible for what we're doing. But it was still a fun study, you know, involved two of my favorite species, dogs and polar bears. And it makes you think outside the box a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. that is so cool. But uh, in the end, Elvis has left the building. Elvis is left-
0: <laughs> Elvis is still alive. He's a... He's a um, buddy to the other sniffer dogs in training that are doing stuff like bed bugs and bombs and COVID, stuff like that.
1: (laughs) Nice. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, And is there anything else that you want to share with my audience?
0: Um, I think we covered a lot today. We did. Yeah. We really did. I'm sure your audience more than most recognizes the value of zoos in animal conservation and the stuff that we can do here in zoos that help their wild counterparts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that is one of my big pushes on this pod. I talk about it all the time. And when I get the chance to talk to PR people at zoos, which I do to book these, I, I always push to push the conservation message, to push the behind the scenes stuff. Pictures of red pandas are great. Trust me, pictures <laughs> of red pandas are great. But if you can also talk about your donations to Red Panda Network or, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff that's being done behind the scenes or crew, then you are actually. Not only furthering the conservation message, but honestly combating the anti-zoo message that Mm -hmm. is out there. And I think that's really important. And I I love, you know, Cincy's amazing at that. Roger Williams Park Zoo is amazing at that. Um, Since I started doing zoo news, I've come to realize a lot of times I'm just repeating the same Mm -hmm. different zoos over and over again, but it's because they're really good at that messaging, whereas other zoos just say, hey, this is the picture of our, you know, blue crane's face. That's
0: cool too. But But it's better when they can attach that conservation message to
1: the cute picture because they're
0: doing the work right yeah you yeah. just need
1: to have it you know out there right and i'm so i'm so grateful that cincinnati is so amazing yeah. at all of that yeah awesome and speaking of conservation are there any conservation organizations that you would like to give a shout out to and why is it polar bears international
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you called it yeah we did
1: not discuss this beforehand no, we but did not. i know no. what's up <laughs> yeah
0: so i was gonna recommend polar bears international they do a lot for conservation and networking bringing groups together um, and helping to teach people more about polar bears and their habitat and climate change in general and how that will impact not just polar bears but all of us
1: yeah awesome it's time now don't you know we've come to the end of the show but there's one tale left to go you're gonna laugh and say oh no it's time for the Ron safari poop story
0: yeah, I, um, so I didn't have much time to think about this beforehand, but as soon as you said, tell me your worst poop story. Poop story. The story that I have isn't from a polar bear. It isn't from a red panda, but it's from a cow during my master's project. So I did my master's in Clemson, South Carolina, where it got very hot in the summer months. Um, so we would usually schedule our cow work pretty early in the morning to try to beat the heat. But by the end of it, by like 11 a.m., it was hot. So working with cows, we're in these tall r- rubber boots. We're in coveralls that are usually long sleeve. Um, so on really hot days, I usually just wear like a tank top under my coveralls. And by the end of the day, I would sort of have like stuff half zipped down, you know, we're all sweating and gross. And one of the last cows I went to work on, we were doing rectal palpations that day. So you sort of lift, put your glove on all the way up to your sleeve, move the cow's tail out of the way and sort of insert your, your glove in. And this cow just projectile diarrhea all over my chest and it hit me like a hose and just dribbled down inside my coveralls, down to my, it was in my socks. Oh, man. So it really just, like, covered me. <laughs> um, and that was probably, but we had to keep working. But, um, yeah, that's probably my worst poop story.
1: That's it. I, I yeah. love that you even have to question if it is, though. That's, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this.
0: Thanks for having me. This was fun.
1: So there you have it, folks, and you can follow along with all the cool things being done at the Cincinnati Zoo by going on social media at Cincinnati Zoo and uh, going to CincinnatiZoo.org for more information from their website. Yeah. So uh, I also want to let you know that there is some very cool, very in-depth patron only bonus audio for this episode. So uh, if you're not a patron of this podcast yet, you can go to patreon.com slash raw And for as little as $3 a month, you can become a patron and then you get access to this and other bonus audio that I put out into the world. Um it's it's fun and and it really helps you know support the pod and and the costs of some of the things that I do uh, so so I appreciate that um, and I want to say a special thanks to Lara Shank, my Red Panda level patron, who will actually be hanging out with me at the National Zoo on the day that this episode is uh, recorded. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to be a patron. I'm sure that has nothing to do with the fact that Lara and I have been friends for literally most of my life. Um, but yeah, so. Go become a patron. And uh, thanks to all of my patrons. Um, okay, now that the interview is over, I'm still going to drop a quick reminder here to make sure that you follow along uh, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Safari, TikTok at Rossifari Pod, and um, make sure you've hit subscribe here because that way you'll get to hear all of these wonderful episodes. Uh, I'll be back next week with another exciting episode from Adventure Aquarium um, as we go into another one of their celebratory weeks and it's, it's a really good and really unique one as well so I'm excited to share that with you but until then, remember friends the word credits backwards is Steiderk. The Rossifari Podcast is produced, hosted and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley gross Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at Rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.